We've complained to the police about the police and nothing's been done. We've complained to magistrates about magistrates and nothing's been done. We've complained to judges about judges and nothing's been done. Now it's time to do something ourselves. Welcome to the very first ever episode of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I am a historian in training, let's say. I'm currently studying my master's, um, just finishing my master's in history. My research loosely is focused around race and gender and I've looked at it in a wide range of contexts. So within Black British history, within Caribbean history um, and within American history, especially within slavery um, and the civil rights movement. So I'm quite broad in the things that I have had the pleasure of researching um, and studying in the past. Um, but for this podcast, for the most part, we'll be talking about Black British history. Um, it is my current passion and I feel like when we have conversations about black history in, in this country, we use the example of America a lot. We use civil rights people. I'm sure most people can name, you know, five people within the American civil rights movement. But could you name five within the British civil rights movement? Probably not. And I'm assuming most of you listening are from Britain. So, you know, we, we've got to do better. Today's episode is going to be about the Mangrove Nine. And the Mangrove Nine, firstly, I'll tell you their names before we get into, you know, a little bit about them. Um, their names were Barbara Beese, Rupert Boyce, Frank Critchlow, Rodan Gordon, Darkus Howe, Anthony Innes, Rothwell Kentish, Godfrey Millet and Althea Jones-Lecoint. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and Althea Jones-Lecoint is the woman you heard at the start of the podcast explaining that we have complained to the police about the police, the magistrates about the magistrates and the judges about the judges and nothing's being done. And so we are taking matters into our own hands. Now, those nine people were charged in 1970 with inciting a riot. And we're going to in the end of the um, episode and maybe in a second episode depending on you know how in-depth my explanation is in this first episode and we're going to look into the mangrove nine um what their story was um and how they ended up being charged with um inciting a riot um in britain in the 1970s so the mangrove was a restaurant in notting hill that opened in 1968 and just to give you a little bit of context about Notting Hill, you know, it's a really affluent area right now. Um, it's probably one of the most sought after postcodes in London, um, a beautiful area. Um, but in the wake of the war, the Second World War, um, it was an under underdeveloped bombsite. Um, there was construction of the Westway motorway um, and the area was literally carved in two and most of it was underdeveloped. So it made it a really cheap place to live. Um, and the cheapest places to live often went to um, recent immigrants that had just come in from the Caribbean. Um, so a lot of the Windrush generation, they would have lived there um, during the 60s um, and the 70s. So as you can imagine, it's quite a black area, quite a West Indian area. Um, and this also further drove down the property value because nobody wanted a black person for their neighbour. And white people, some white people would pay extra to make sure that wasn't the case. So it meant that you have an area, Notting Hill, that has quite a high percentage of black people and 
a benefit of that for them was that it created a sense of community because everybody was together, everybody could, you know, help each other to survive in, you know, British society, which was definitely not kind to black people in the 70s. I just want to note that community is a really important factor to consider when we think about black British history, especially when we're looking at the 60s, 70s and 80s. We don't often function within community so much anymore. Um, I think society has kind of shut down when it comes to the physical, like meeting up and things like that. We have, you know, jumped to kind of online communities where we are able to kind of find people like ourselves, you know, through the internet. But back in the day, people did that physically. And the Mangrove restaurant was one of those places um, that was kind of a centre, a hub in the community. And it was a place that everybody could go to. So as I said earlier, it was opened um, in 1968 by a Trinidadian community activist and civil rights leader um, and campaigner. And his name was Frank Critchlow, um, one of the Mangrove Nine. So he came to England in 1953 on a ship called the SS Columbia, which is actually the same ship that my granddad came on. Um, I'd love to know if they knew each other. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Um, I don't think the ships were, were that, that um, I don't know, actually. They probably were quite big, actually. Anyway, the Mangrove restaurant was described as the beating heart of Notting Hill. Um, it was a West Indian restaurant. Um, it sold, you know, West Indian food. So I can imagine that it was a big hit in the community. Got people that are far away from home, you know, missing home cooking, missing the sounds of their family's voices. And then you've got a place like the Mangrove. Now, just to give you a kind of sense of this restaurant this restaurant was no like you know small yard shop in the corner this was an upmarket restaurant Bob Marley Jimi Hendrix Diana Ross Marvin Gaye Nina Simone CLR James had all dined there and if you can imagine these are big these are big names now let alone then and they were going to West London to Notting Hill to Frank Critchlow's Mangrove restaurant to eat and more generally, it, was, it wasn't it was just a place for the stars, for the rich and famous. It was a place for the community to go. Um, it was said that it had a really nice atmosphere in there. People went there for housing help or for legal aid because there was always someone that you could, you know, ask for some help or some support. Um, and I think it's important to note the kind of significance of physical spaces um, in Britain, which we don't really see too much, as I mentioned earlier, you know, bookshops were opened by people like John LaRose and Eric and Jessica Huntley. Restaurants and community centres, as well as front rooms, were where activism took place in those times. So a place like the Mangrove was not just important with, you know, feeding people. It really gave people a sense of community and it was a place that they owned. Black people did not own much in those days. And that was something that they owned, that they had, and it was there to serve them. Furthermore... A newspaper, newspaper, sorry, called The Hustler was published there. Um, and it also was the informal head office for the Notting Hill Carnival, which started in the 1960s. So it had massive community vibes. And not it wasn't just there for the black community. Um, there was a lot more solidarity between black and South Asian communities at the time. And it was a place that they could go and feel comfortable as well as white people. Those kind of white people that were on the kind of edge of society... They were called um, Radical um, and they kind of would go there as well um, just as a place that was a bit outside of English culture. It was a bit different. It was nice. It was warm. It was friendly. Um, people have described it um, and these are direct quotes. They've said 
It was like a sanctuary. It was family, a base of support. There was good food, but there was way more to it. They'd get advice on things like housing. Frank's restaurant became the crucible for all of that. So I think we really have to, I really wanted to stress, I should say, the importance of this restaurant um, as a physical space for activism, as well as a kind of symbolic place for a change that needed to happen in society. The restaurant was all the community had, and it highlights, I think it highlights a threat um, that black people allegedly posed in Britain, physically and symbolically. Um, and we're going to get onto that threat um, and, you know, maybe why people were so threatened um, by a West Indian restaurant in West London. Unfortunately, it really didn't take much to arouse suspicion as a black person in Britain in the 1960s or 70s or 80s or 90s or even now really let's be honest um and a large group of black people in a restaurant um it's it rubbed the police up the wrong way for some reason um it offended the community and it created um quite a lot of negativity because of it um so the police were kind of very suspicious of this restaurant. They decided that it was some kind of crime den. They decided that drugs, pimps, prostitutes were there and they decided that they had to police um, this area. Now, another common theme we'll see when we look at, you know, interactions with the police and, and black people in British history um, is this idea that that black people and black communities, they're over-policed as suspects and under-protected as victims. Um, it happens time and time again. Um, as victims of racial abuse and racial assault, um, there is very little concern for black people, but when it comes to picking them out as suspects, it's a very overzealous approach by the police, especially the Metropolitan Police, who we're going to be looking at right now because we are in London. Um, so one of the things that the police used to do was park outside the restaurant all night and just watch. Um, just literally watch the restaurant. Um, and now this doesn't sound like, oh, it's not that bad. You know, if you're doing nothing wrong, why does it matter that the police are there? Well, think about it logically. Even in today's society, if there was a restaurant that you liked going to, but every single day the police were out there, it would begin to tick over maybe in your mind that this restaurant is not a good restaurant. This restaurant has something to hide. This restaurant's always involved with the police. This restaurant has to be bad. And that was a kind of reputation that was being kind of negatively like sucking in the mangrove restaurant because there was literally nothing going on there. Frank Critchlow, the, the owner of the restaurant, he was known as being so anti-drugs that any drug dealers or like suspicious people in the area, they did not feel comfortable in the mangrove. They did not go there. It was not a place for people like that. It was not a place for criminals. It was not a place for drug dealers. He wanted to create a very formal establishment that, you know, upheld the law, rightly so, like most people in Britain. He was literally living by the law um, and just wanted to create a place for black people to enjoy their food. Now, from the months... January 1969 um, to July 1970, um, the restaurant was raided 12 times. So this is middle of the night, police barging in. <laughs> that was my impression of a police raid. Um, yeah, so, you know, I can only imagine the trauma, the cost to the business if a police, you know, police vans 
are raiding your premises, you know, 12 times. And that is not a long period of time to have 12 raids. Um, the police would come on the account of there was a suspicion of narcotics on site. In all 12 raids, guess how many drugs they found? They found zero drugs. They never found a single drug in any of the raids, impromptu visits, drive-bys, or all the many things that they did. Um, they had no real reason for suspicion apart from the fact that the people that owned it and the people that visited it were black. And that is literally all there was to it. Um, on December 23rd, 1969, the local council of Kensington and Chelsea, you know, that lovely borough, um, they issued Frank with a notice that he lost his he had lost his license to operate as an all night cafe, which it was um, prior to 1969. And I just want you to check the date. That was the 23rd of December. So two days before Christmas, um, the local council tell you that you can't run your restaurant that's been doing well, you know, serving the community. You can't run it as an all night restaurant. And so they used that as an excuse um, to be able to find themselves a police to find themselves into in the mangrove um you know after i think after the hours of 11 he had to stop trading so he couldn't sell any food after that time and they'd go in there and see people eating obviously you know if they had been in there prior to that and the kitchen had closed but the people were still eating or people were eating their own snacks from home because it was a community hub it was a place where you could just pull up and do some work or pull up and have a meeting um, about a community group or an activist project um and they would they would see people eating or having a snack or um, literally, you know, having a conversation with a drink and say, oh, you've broken your license laws. You shouldn't be trading at this time. And he'd have to obviously explain I'm not trading. But this is tiring. Can you imagine police consistently coming into your business, asking questions, um, throwing around suspicions? Not only does it create a negative atmosphere around your business, but it is also absolutely exhausting. And to be quite honest with you, if I was frank... Would I have just closed the restaurant down? Probably. It's a good job I wasn't frank because the community really needed that place. Um, anyway, it got to the point where, you know, Frank had had enough. Um, so he leant towards the British Black Panthers. Um, and yes, the Britain had Black Panthers. They were inspired by the US Black Panthers. Um, I think Stokely Carmichael had visited England in similar time in the late 1960s um and he had seen the way black people had been treated were being treated in britain and you know it was obviously comparable to america who were going through the civil rights movement at the same time um so yeah the british black panthers um quite a few of the members of the mangrove nine that i mentioned earlier were leaders in the black panther party um and there was another group called the black improvement organization um they were i think a collective of barristers and lawyers so there was a man called Anthony Mohip um, and they all worked together with Frank to write a letter to Edward Heath the Prime Minister and the Home Office to call out the unfair treatment that they were receiving from the police. So just a quick recap before we head into our like final section for today's episode um, about the Mangrove Nine. Um, so police brutality um, is occurring on the Mangrove Nine, on the people that visit there, on the owners, and the police are harassing the establishment. They are, you know, consistently finding themselves at the Mangrove. And they're not coming there for a plate of food. They're coming there to bully, to harass, to brutalise the people um, that, that work there and, you know, that 
own the place. So you can imagine the, you know, attitudes towards the police at this time are not going to be very positive. Um, They are literally ruining, first of all, Frank's livelihood, the community's hub and sense of, you know, identity and space. Um, And they are not doing it in a polite way. Um, I think 1965, the Race Relations Act came in, which is where it was legally, um, or it was legal to, you know, be racist and discriminate based on race or ethnicity or nationhood. Um, And so prior to this, this, none of these things were illegal. They might have been, you know, socially frowned upon in certain circles or certain areas, but these things were very much legal. Um, And you know that if a law changes, it's not as if society will just change with the law. Um, Societal change tends to take a lot of time. Um, And this was definitely the case um, for racism um, and racial discrimination. As we know, it's 2020 and these things are still existing now. So as you can imagine, three years after the act was passed, um, things weren't really all that great or all that different. Um, And I can imagine that, you know, racial language was used towards um, the people that, you know, went to the Mangrove Nine, went went to the Mangrove Restaurant, sorry, um, and to the owners. Um, I can't imagine that these raids were done, you know, with understanding, with compassion, with, like, politeness and care. Um, The Met aren't really known for that, unfortunately, for them, um, and unfortunately for us, um, people that live live in that city. Um, But it was the case that, you know, relations were strained. This is an extended period of nearly two years of the beating down of of Frank Critchlow and his business um, and the people um, that also went to that restaurant. So as you can imagine, you know, as we as they are preparing for this protest, there are a lot of emotions, there is a lot of tension, but black people are not stupid. Black people know that when it comes to the police, there is only one group of people that will win and that is the white police. Um, I think at this point there was, I think Norwell Roberts, uh, the first um, black man to be appointed um, as a police officer in the Met, um, and he was appointed in 1967. Um, I'm not sure when the second or third uh, person was selected, um, but as you can imagine, it's not as if, you know, the police uh, were black, it's not as if the police were probably even from the area that they were policing, um so there is a lot of tension there's going to be a lot of animosity um on both sides you can imagine um because the police already have you know these racialized stereotypes and ideas about black people and how they're ruining their country and stealing their jobs um and whilst obviously that's not going to be all the police um it was kind of a societal belief it was a thing that was very prevalent in society um, I'm sure you've seen posters that say KBW on Keep Britain White or, you know, no Irish, no dogs, no blacks um, and things of that nature. Um, these were very much ideas that were accepted within society and they would have bore down on, you know, black people, the kind of people that went to protest um, for the Mangrove restaurant. So on Sunday, the 9th of August, 1970, Um, A crowd gathered just after lunchtime in order to protest Um, and it was, you know, planned to be a peaceful protest. There wasn't a predetermined concrete route um, at the time that they started. 
Um, but they had started at the Mangrove restaurant and they were protesting around the West London area. So a hundred protesters gathered and I think by the time it reached about 2.45, there were 150 protesters. Um, so, you know, by today's standards of the Black Lives Matter protests in London, it was a very small protest. Um, and I remember the idea I said um, that black people, black communities are over-policed as suspects and under-protected as victims. Well, just bring that back to your mind and just have a guess how many officers were deployed for the protests because these were planned protests, they were legal. Um, just have a think, you know, relatively speaking, for 150 protesters, 100 to start with, how many police officers would you need? Well, I'll tell you, the London Metropolitan Police decided they needed 700 police officers on the day. They had 588 constables, 84 sergeants, 29 inspectors, four chief inspectors and plainclothes officers and special branch detectives who were all made available on the day of the protests. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a protest organised by Caribbean people, but as you can imagine, it was very jolly. And that was one of the things that Barbara Beese, another one of the Mangrove Nine, described it as. She said it was absolutely ridiculous the amount of police that were there because the march was meant to be jolly and good-spirited and that's how it started. I think the drums were knocking, songs were being sung and they were just going around their community alerting people to the things that were happening to them in the restaurant. Now, as you can imagine, that is a lot of police officers and now a lot of people together because you've got (laughs) the 150 protesters and around 700 officers, and I don't know how um, the kind of logistics of that, I don't think all 700, you know, cascaded down at one point, I think it was along the route, more police would keep joining, Um, and if you can imagine, if there's 150 protesters and 700 officers, I'm really bad at maths, but that's like, that's a lot of officers um, to protesters, I I can't work out the ratios, but that just seems like overzealous policing um, in its most simplistic form. Um, a peaceful protest that is, you know, legally happening and the police have been informed about it, yet they turn up with so many officers knowing full well what they have done to the mangrove in the months and years leading up to this and the fact that they have never, not once, found any drugs on site of the mangrove restaurant. There has been no issues in terms of, um, you know, violence or prostitution or drug use um, at the restaurant the only instances they've had is when they have taken it upon themselves to go and raid the restaurant Um, and so the protest ensued and I think we're going to wait till the next episode to talk about what happened at the protest the trial and the aftermath Um, because I think there's some really important themes that need you know longer than longer than like five minutes to kind of just wrap up they are the the trial itself um it was groundbreaking and it set precedences in black british history and british history itself actually um the rulings made by the judge um and you know the way that the accused conducted the trial um it is actually quite breathtaking um and so we're gonna look at that in the next episode um which will be coming out very soon Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've learned a lot. I hope you have enjoyed. 
um, all this information about the Mangrove Nine, feel free to to re-listen, um, to take a look on YouTube. There are documentaries galore about these incredible individuals um, and what they also went on to do um, and had done prior to you know being accused of inciting a riot. These are nine individuals. Um, you know, that led very um, extraordinary lives um, outside of this this instance. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you all soon. Bye.